All right. I guess we're ready to get things started, aren't we? All right. Here we go. Question number one. If Jesus were to come back and observe our American churches and worship services, what do we think he would say? Would he be pleased with? What would disappoint him? Where might he say that we missed the mark? And Blake is going to take the lead on this one. So I've had two weeks really to think about this. Um, And I really wanted to uh, find like actual words that Jesus said to churches. Uh, So one of the first places I thought about um, was what Jesus says to <clears throat> these seven churches in Revelation. And one thing that he says many things, but uh, one thing I believe stands out uh, a lot is he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And many times we hear that verse in the context of evangelism. Uh, like, if you'll just open up your heart, he's knocking. Uh, But this is in the context of Jesus speaking to churches, really the message of repent, that he's the one that's standing there knocking um, at at the door of these churches. And he continues on to say that if whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if there's one thing I, I would believe that he would say to churches is really this. Listen, you know, um, I believe there's one thing that battles for our hearing of him. And that's the fact that many times we're in a hurry. And usually when we're in a hurry, we're not hearing much. So I I really do believe he would say to us, maybe just maybe slow your roll a little bit. And the words that I say to my son all the time, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I believe that's what, what he would say. And there's there's tons of things that he says to the churches um, that are, I know for the Church of Philadelphia, he commends them for being faithful um, to all the other churches. There are, you know, he commends them on certain things, but most of the time he's addressing uh, the fact that they have forsaken their first love. Um, they have uh, really just compromised in their faith. So I believe Jesus, he would, he would say, um, look, I'm here. I want you to know that. I want you to hear, though, the truth that I'm saying to you, whether that is uh, commendable or rather uncomfortable. First that came to my mind was John 4.24, uh, where Jesus said, God is spirit, and, or Jesus, the Lord said to the woman at the well, uh, God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. And I think for many of our Baptist and evangelical churches in America, the Lord would look at us and say, uh, thank you for taking my word seriously. I think he would commend us on the fact that we have stood on the inerrancy of the word, on the truthfulness of the word, on the fact that the word is applied to all of our life. Um, But the other side of that verse that I think that the Lord might look at us with a sense of um, disappointment is on the spirit side of that verse when he said that we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, I wonder not only how the Lord would take this, take this, but how Christians in other nations would take this, and especially in persecuted nations, of how we take church for granted, um, the privilege of being able to gather in his name and worship freely in his name, and how I think because of the fact that we have religious freedom, I am thankful we have religious freedom. Don't misunderstand me when we say this. But because of the fact that we have had religious freedom for so long, we have forgotten what that means. And we've forgotten the significance of the act of worship. It's become routine. Um, I mean, when's the last time that you woke up on a Sunday morning as fired up about Sunday morning service as you were about the game on Saturday night? Um, When's the last time that we got fired up and and, uh, um, we're just pumped up about the fact that we have the privilege to come into the Lord's presence in worship? I think that's what the Lord would tell us um, in my observation of things, that we have gotten the truth part right, but sometimes we've missed the spirit part. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think... think 
I've fought it kind of the same way as Jeff has, but a little, a little bit different. I, I think the first thing that he would say was, I've been here all along. Why haven't you noticed me? Uh, it, it, you know, the, the Bible promises us that when we gather together in His name, that He is here with us. And I think we have like taken that for granted and ignored the fact that He is here. He already was here. Uh, and and for, him, for Him to come in a, a visible manifestation, I guess, uh, is, is Him saying, why didn't, why didn't you know I was here already? Uh, that, to me, is kind of what it, what it boils down to. Well, I agree with you, fellas. And uh, to know the mind of God, we certainly need to know the Word of God and uh, the verses that God took me to. In that question, what would Jesus say? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. He said this in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What that's telling us, he says, I have the authority. All right, that goes two ways. You do what I say, and also I'm going to help you. Verse 19 says, he would say this, Go therefore, come on, more, uh, well, I lost it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. And lo, here it is, as Gary said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think the thing that he would like about this church and say about this, I don't know if it's time to answer that or not, but he would say, wonderful unity, lots of great love. He would say that to us, I, I feel very sure. But the thing that disappoints him, I think, is the complacency about lost souls. Well, just, just one thing I, I share, you know, especially being one that leads in worship. Uh, I think sometimes we come in uh, with a consumer mentality. What are you going to do for me today? How are you going to move me? Um, and that's not what we're here for. Um, we're here to worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, so I think we just need to be completely focused on him and what he has to say to us when, he comes in, when we come into this room and not what are you going to do for me. Uh, when we come in. Okay. You want me to go on? Or you need to add anything? Okay. All right. We, we kind of call this a speed round. We'll see how speedy we get with these questions because um, some of them are a little uh, easy to answer, some of them not so much. Uh, but the first one, we as Christians believe the Bible as the truth. Question, is the Bible the whole truth? Are there other worldly facts, truths that are undocumented in the Bible? If so, provide examples. And starting with Gary. When we first talked about this staff meeting, I had a very quick, concise answer. And then I started thinking about it and praying about it, and my answer is not as quick as, and concise as it once was. Um, and I think what the, the question has in there is an equivalence between truth and fact, and really those two things are different. Uh, the Bible tells us, and it's John 14, 6 states it simply, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and started thinking more about that, and the truth, what is truth, stems from the character of God. Uh, it, is, it stems from God, just who He is and what He is. And Jesus, as the, the, really the self-expression of God, is the truth. Uh, Hebrews tells us that, that uh, Jesus is the final revelation of who God is, and that is truth. Facts come out of truths. Uh, does the Bible contain all truth? Yes, it contains all the truth that God has revealed to us because through it, God has revealed Himself. Are there facts that are not in the Bible? Yes. I can't find in here any place that says one plus one equals two. That's a fact. One plus one equals two, at least in ten base mathematics. 
Uh, but the ground of truth, all the basic truths, anything that is truly true and coincides with ultimate reality is to be found in God, and God is to be found in the Bible. Are there other truths? Not if they conflict with the character of God and how He's revealed ourselves, Himself. That was a speed run. All right. I, I'm, I'm going to speed through this thought too. Uh, one plus one is truth. When a teacher says one plus one is, is two, she is telling the truth. But she is not the truth, or he is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. So what is in the Bible is the truth we need for our eternal life. All right, I'll move to question uh, number three on our, on our list. Uh, name a time in your life when God was faithful. And you are sure it was only God that helped you. And I get to stop that one, start that one off. Um, those of you, not, most of you in here tonight know uh, a little bit about Ronnie and I and our testimony in, of family planning. Um, she and I uh, started to plan for a family of our own. And uh, two years in a row, uh, Ronnie and I lost babies the week of Mother's Day. Um, one was through basically a miscarriage the second our son was born and lived only nine hours. Um, in that moment, it was only God that could carry us through that. A uh, specific example of that. Um, after Asher, our son, was born, and just like Josh, our son was Asher. And um, after, as soon as after he was born, they had to rush him to the NICU uh, real quick. And the doctor was going over everything with me, telling me all these medical terms and technical things that had to be done and to whisk him out of there really quick. Uh, while the nurses were dealing with Ronnie and, and everything. And so I remember walking from that room and out to tell my parents. And I don't even remember how I got there. I don't even remember having the strength to even speak to them. Um, and I knew that was God carrying me because I didn't have it of my own. I was so weak um, emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, I knew God carried me through that moment uh, without a doubt. Um, and then pressing forward in faith... Ronnie and I proceeded to uh, adopt, uh, and some of you have gone through adoption, and you know that process. You have to have lots of faith uh, for God to carry you through uh, that process and um, the way he led us through it, the way he provided for us, uh, because we didn't have the finances to do it, and um, miraculously, they were provided, uh, and in all kinds of different ways, and if you want to talk to me, Afterwards, I can share those with you, uh, but it wouldn't be a speed round question if I continued to go through that. Uh, but that's my two examples. Yeah, my, my example is, is similar to Bart's in that it revolves around um, our adoption. Uh, you know, we, and I've shared the story before, but I'll share it again because I know somebody may, in here may not have heard it, but we, uh, we so badly wanted children. We felt like that was God's call in our life to be parents, but yet he was not opening that up in the normal way of doing things. Um, could not seem to uh, to um, bring that about, and, and so the Lord led us to adoption, and, and we. Uh, um, it was interesting how God brought us both to that point at exactly the same time. Um, you know, as we're thinking and praying and talking to it as a couple, and then praying through this as individuals. Uh, we're driving back from. We had taken a weekend and gone up to watch some Cardinals baseball, and we're driving back from St. Louis, and the ride, the whole ride back, we just poured out our hearts to each other, and, we, and God had brought us both to that exact point. Um, then we go through this waiting period of, of it ended up being two years, uh, and we expected it to be so much shorter. You know, they tell you, oh, it's going to be six months or so, and nothing happens, nothing happens, and you keep wondering, okay, God, why are you doing this? Why are you putting us through that? But it was because he was preparing us for that moment. Um, interestingly enough, um, a few months before our boys were born, uh, we had gotten a phone call from the adoption agency, and they said, hey, um, we think we have a placement for you. We're not so sure yet. It, it's going to be twin girls. And, uh, and we were like, okay, okay, you know, we'll get ready for this. And, uh, um, and then uh, they called back and said, no, it didn't work out. She decided to, she ended up going to another agency. And, and our, jokingly, we kind of thought, Phew, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're ready for twins, uh, but the Lord was preparing us for that. He was, he was getting us ready, and praise the Lord, it was twin boys. Amen to that, because uh, he knew I did not need twin girls in my house. 
Um, they, uh, that would not have been good. <laughs> but, but God was bringing us to that point and getting us ready, and I know it was God that did it. And there was no doubt in my mind that it was the Lord that brought us to that. So there was a season in my life when uh, there was an extended period of uh, what I would call uh, vocational ministry, and then there was a season when uh, I was not like at a church or on staff. And through that season, um, I had a lot of questions, and I learned that God's okay with my questions. Um, asked a lot of questions, went through um, what Spurgeon would call a dark night of the soul, and um, I always found myself at Shelby Farms Park, and that's where I would uh, just go kind of duke it out with the Lord and <laughs> tell him all my fears and my worries. We got a new baby, got two growing boys that are eating us out of house and home, and I uh, just didn't know where... Um, the next, you know, position was going to be, and um, just, he sent me into a warehouse to work with, with a whole bunch of people that don't know the Lord, and, you know, you got, I would say, you to try to stay decently clean cut, and I walk in there, and there's people throwing around words that I'm like, oh my goodness, that's a wonderful vocab you have, um, but just that challenging environment, um, but man, God was just so good and really just revealed a lot of issues about me, revealed a lot of, of my own pride and my own, um, you know, it was almost as if he was like, all right, preacher boy, why don't you uh, talk about Jesus in this environment? Um, so I just saw how good and faithful God was during that season, and he brought us here to Fisherville. And then I know even on a more, I guess, practical level that I know parents can relate to this, sometimes, you know, our, our kids can they can just push our buttons, and, and I know for me, I can be rather quick-tongued, and uh, there was a day, even recently, when I, I'm ashamed to even say, I just lit into my boy Wade, and uh, he ran to his room crying, and I felt like a puddle right there, um, but you know, I apologize to my kid. I'm not going to wait till he's an adult or to even understand the word apology before I tell my kid sorry. Um, but just even seeing like personal growth in me, like not being so quick tempered with with Wade and uh, my own children and just, you know, allowing God to teach me patience and to put me in the proverbial corner. That's what he does to me. So I've just seen a lot of that in my own personal life. The Lord helping me with that, and uh, I'm grateful. It's a dangerous question. Um, you know, I I could go back and come up with those uh, those big times, those big decisions that you have to make, and you you see God at work in them. But I I think what what I've tried to kind of discipline myself a little bit more with the God's leading is to see God at work daily in all those little things. Unfortunately, it is sometimes in God's convicting work that you see Him uh, when we have fallen short ourselves uh, and He reveals Himself to us. And, you know, you don't, you don't go uh, too many years in your life and in relationships without having those times. And it, it takes a while for us to realize that, too, is God acting in our lives. And only God can sometimes bring that conviction uh, and that humility that we need uh, more often than we should. Well, uh, it was last week I shared a story about being in uh, Honduras where the storm was turned away when we prayed for it to save our our projector, and uh, to to uh, show the another story, I have a book at home, and and I recommend you do this. Have some sort of book where you journal, especially at times when God does something special in your life, and you recognize that it was Him. Uh, it was a time Jack Moore and I had gone on visitation to Baptist East Hospital. And sometimes you get a wrong number when, uh, for the room number, and, you know, they're being changed around. So we walked into a room expecting to find one of our church members. And uh, when we walked inside there and introduced ourselves, we recognized this was not our church member. It was someone else who looked like they were very pitiful and, and very weak. 
it was a lady, and uh, so uh, we said, well, we're sorry, we have come into the wrong room, and Jack Moore said, John, why don't you pray for this lady, and I said, okay, I will, and so I prayed, and I prayed, Lord, give this lady strength, help her through this situation that she's going through, that she'll be healed, and help her to return to her church where she leads the music, amen, and she said, and Jack said, what, and I said, oh, and uh, the lady said, how did you know I am the song leader at our church for the women's ministry, I said, well, I guess God told me, so, but anyway, um, that's my story, and I'm stuck with it, (laughs) (laughs) but I do recommend you write down times, because it's a time to look back on and receive strength from when you're saying, God, I don't think you're going to help me through this, but you can go back and read things, yes, he's there, he's there, you see it in your past. All right, next question. I'm glad Blake is leading off on this one. What makes a cuss word a cuss word and not okay to say? Do tell, Blake. If your dad knocks you out, it's not good to say. Um, I really do believe you you need to, um, especially when it comes to our speech, we need to be uh, discerning. The Bible is not going to provide you with a list of of words not to say, um, but it certainly does have guidelines that can assist any believer in using speech that is uh, well-pleasing to the Lord and to others. Um, I personally wrote down a few things to maybe encourage you, um, a qu- some questions you can ask. One is, does it debase or cheapen great realities? For example, if you're just throwing around the word God, or if you're just throwing around the name of Jesus or hell or words like that, I would strongly encourage you not to cheapen great realities. And we've got to be careful with the, the words that come out of our mouth. Um, does it come under the category of uh, culturally recognized um, as, as crude or um, off color or offensive? Which usually you can get that answer real quick because people will just go, They'll just look at you. Uh, that's, that's a way that you can set some parameters. Uh, but I believe this is the most important part, is what are you thinking and feeling when you speak? What are you thinking and feeling when you speak? When, when a word comes out of your mouth or a series of words, what are you thinking when you say those things or feeling? Because that is providing you with insight to your heart. Because what's down in the well comes up in the bucket, okay? Um, and also, I have not met too many people who cuss that aren't angry, bitter, upset. Um, usually, it's just revealing the content in their heart. Their language is, is showing us the heart. James has a lot to say about that. Um, and then, does it minister grace to those who hear? You know, that's, that's where I stand on it. All right, we're going on. I feel like that one was covered. All right. (laughs) Questions about heaven and eternal life. When will we receive our new bodies? Ooh, I'm excited about that one. Will we recognize our family members? What age will we be in heaven? That's a speed round question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just glad I'll be able to eat. I'm sorry. You you got me with the side comment there, Bart. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, when we think about heaven, I think um, a couple things come to my mind uh, from the get-go. Um, you know, the question was there, when we receive our new bodies, uh, the Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so for a believer, from the moment of death and passing from this life, you are ushered into the presence of the Lord, and you will be in the Lord's presence for all eternity. Um, we can debate about the physical body, spiritual body, aside of that, um, you know, uh, and, and when we'll receive a physical body, we know for certain that we will receive a physical body at the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not be, we should not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. I, I don't read that passage and think that you die and you just have to wait for the resurrection to happen, and then you're in God's presence. No, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we are in the Lord's presence. We're experiencing that relationship. We are still very much individuals. It may be a more spiritual realm than it is a physical realm, but we are still individual people experiencing heaven as individuals. The Lord said, I behold, I go to prepare a place for you, specifically for you as an individual. Um, and so I, I know that for certain, and I know for certain that we will receive our resurrection body at the resurrection, and that's the moment in which Jesus is coming back to this earth to make all things new. And so uh, we were talking about this. Um, I got asked to go meet with a, uh, a group of teenagers this past Friday that does like, we have like a speech and debate club here at the, at the church that meets on Fridays, and someone asked that question um, you know, what, what happens? What about our bodies in heaven? And, and the way I tried to explain it there is, is heaven currently is a spiritual state, but there's going to come a moment when all things are made new and earth is made new and we live here on earth for all eternity um, with God. And so we know that it's still going to be heaven and we're still whole because when we pass into heaven, we shed the curse of sin. And so the aging and the pain and the trouble that comes with the curse of sin um, is gone. And so what we will experience in heaven will not be a, a like, oh, i got to live with my problems until we get our new body. No, it's I'm perfect then. I'm made whole then. I'm complete then in that moment. Um, and then at the resurrection, we come back to a, a Garden of Eden type state. Um, I think the second part of that question was, will we recognize each other in heaven? I do believe we will. Uh, and the reason why I believe that, a couple different reasons. Number one, because when we see, for instance, in the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, and Jesus is on that mountain, and he's transfigured, and, and who appears there? Moses and Elijah. And the disciples recognize them immediately. As far as we can tell from the text, Jesus didn't have to say, oh, let me introduce you to Moses. Let me introduce you to Elijah. They had never seen these guys. They lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter, James, and John were alive, but yet they knew them immediately. And I can't help but think that that means that when we are in eternity, we will recognize one another, that we will see each other and know each other. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so I believe that when we are in heaven, there will be that great knowledge in which we will recognize. But I would also add this too. When we enter into heaven, um, we are entering into a realm in which everyone is family. I mean, we are brothers and sisters in Christ here on earth, but we will enter into a realm full of only brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I believe we will recognize our family, but I think at the same time we're going to get a larger family that we will have just as close of a bond to as we do our physical families here right now because we will then truly experience that, that, that full weight of the brotherhood, sisterhood of Christ and the relationship there. Someone asked, what age are we going to be in heaven? Um, I don't think we can know. Um, I, I don't think we can know, I, I, but just like I said a minute ago, when we step into heaven, we are leaving behind the curse of sin. Uh, we are leaving behind the, the, the curse. And so I, I don't think we're going to simply move into heaven and stay the same age that we are when we die. Um, I, I like to think that when we enter into heaven, we're going to be at... Um, a good, healthy peak age. Uh, you know, I know for some of us, we might have peaked, health, our, our athletic ability might have peaked when we were like six or something like that. Um, but I think that we will be a, a good age in which, I don't know, this is just a guess. This is just Jeff talking here, and I don't have a scripture to back this up, but I do, I happen to think we're going to be the age of Adam and Eve when they were created. Um, that's just an idea in my mind that God obviously created them not as children. 
He created them at an age in which they could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and so they must have been young adults at least. And I kind of happen to think that if that's the age that God would have created them, maybe that's the age that we will be then. Because remember, we won't age. I mean, we're going to be there for eternity, and so it's not like we're going to get there and then the clock's going to start and we're going to start aging again. I believe we're going to be one age, and that's going to be it. Um, and so I think it'll be that. I think it'll be that. Uh, because I think, I think in that moment we're going to see... Um, I think part of the experience of heaven is the fact that we're going to not only have that family experience, but we're going to see each other without the pain of sin. You know, we see each other and we see what sin has done to us, the curse of sin. Not, I'm not just talking about your own bad decisions. I'm talking about the curse of sin, the age, the pain, the cancer, the struggles, all the different things that we have that we go through. We see each other, and we, we, we see the, the pain that sin and that curse has caused. And we're going to step into heaven, and that's not going to be there anymore. And I think you're, there's going to be a sense in which we look at everyone and say, Wow, you look great. Bart, you look awesome. <laughs> Blake, you look great. Uh, that we're going to see each other truly as God intended us to be, um, the way he meant us to be. So, anyone else want to add to that? I'd like, to, I'd like to add something to that. Uh, one thing about Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were one day old, Jeff, so I don't know. <clears throat> but I don't think we will be babies when babies dies, they, die. They will be a, a, a different type of thing. They won't be, and they won't be old. You won't be old. And you won't be age 33. And the, the, the scripture that I'm using to back it up is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. With the Lord, a thousand years are as one day. And one day is as a thousand years. And what that is plainly saying is that we will be ageless in heaven and because uh, God is outside the limits of time, and, and we will be too. So uh, and what you said is exactly right, Jeff. We won't know the age because there won't be a number system going on. It'll be, there you are. I don't think it'll be even a concern to us. I, no. I think we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be perfect as God intended us to be. Yeah. Yeah, I have a verse real quick before you jump in there, Gary, uh, about uh, how will we recognize family. And, and you said it, uh, but I got a scripture verse that talks about uh, the family. Uh, this is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50. Uh, they, uh, they came looking for Jesus, uh, his family did, his mother and some of his brothers and sisters, and they said, your mother, brother, and sister are outside looking for you. And Jesus answered like this, who is my mother and my brother? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. For whoever does the will of the Father, in, uh, my Father in heaven, is my mother and my sister and my brothers. So, uh, yeah, like you said, we will be just his children, all of us. One of the, I mean, we're dealing with uh, the difference between heaven and ma the material world. We have to think about the difference between time as we experience and eternity. God, apparently, from what I read in, in, in Scripture, lives in eternity, not in our linear time. Heaven is where God is present. When we go to be with Jesus, at our death, we enter into eternity. Uh, there will be there. Then that's an eternal present. It's not. There's no linear element to it. So when we go to be with Jesus, we won't experience a wait until the until Christ comes again and we're reunited with our body. From the world's perspective, there may be a gap. But in eternity, there is no gap there. Uh, so we don't, I, I don't think, and again, I don't think that we get to heaven and wait for a hundred years before we realize the resurrection of our body. I think we are, the Bible says we're made whole. Uh, and that wholeness to me is the reunification of the soul and the body into who we, who we were meant to be. And there won't be any realization of a, of a time gap there. Um, I, I know that sounds a little strange, but it doesn't contradict anything that anyone else 
has said here, because we only perceive time now. In eternity, we will not have a perception of time. We'll move on then. Uh, and it's actually our final question uh, tonight. Uh, when we ad- attend a family gathering, there are in-laws with drinks in their hands. They immediately begin offering my husband and me excuses for drinks. How should we respond and not cause rifts in the family? And they chose me to lead off in this question. Uh, I'm, first, I'm going to share a very comical story. I've shared it with the choir um, I was 21 uh, when I was part-time on a staff. I was a minister of uh, music and youth at a little church near my college. And it was time for our first Christmas cantata I ever directed. I was a nervous wreck. And um, so we were, and I had had like a little congestion. I mean, back then, you know, I was in college. I had finals. I had uh, voice juries and all that kind of stuff. And it just, I would get exhausted. And usually I would get sick the first week of December every year. And this year was no different. And I had a big solo that night um, in the cantata as well as directing. And the pastor's wife and I both were complaining a little bit about our tickle in our throat. And one of the deacon's wife says, well, I keep this in my purse just for that very thing. I want y'all to drink this right before we go out. So the pastor's wife and I both took a drink. And that was my first drink of alcohol. It was behind the choir loft before we went out for my first Christmas cantata. And I didn't know what was going down until it burned all the way down. And the pastor's wife and I looked at each other and thought, okay, we just drank. And so that was my, my drink. But on a serious note, um, back in college, I was very active in our BSU um, and did a lot of things as far as as, as role as a chaplain in my high school and college as well. Um, and so people knew that I was unapologetically a Christian and, and assumed I didn't drink. Uh, those of you are there my age, I remember students staying straight and what that meant at that time, you know, it meant we did not drink or do drugs. I was uh, one of the officers in that club. So I did not drink and everybody knew that. Um, But I I attended a wedding of a very, very dear friend and uh, they had alcohol at their wedding, but it was in punch and I had no idea. So when we went through the line, my friend and I both got a, a glass of the punch and we sat down and I noticed everyone's eyes on me staring at me. And I thought, I asked my friend, I said, why is everybody staring at us? We're sitting there. Why are they watching what we're doing? We just sat down. I said, do I have something on my shirt? What's going on? Then we figured it out after talking with each other that the punch had alcohol in it and they were going to see if we drank it. And we didn't. And that was like a visual image of me right then and there of what a stumbling block might be. Because they were all expecting me not to do it and they wanted to cheer if I did because they knew of my stand that I didn't do it. Not that I'm critical of anybody else for decisions they make. That's my personal choice uh, that I made, and that is why I do not choose to drink alcohol. We thought what might be helpful in thinking through this question as we read it, um, we kind of were wondering, is the person, you know, when they said they immediately began offering my husband and me excuses for drinks, we didn't know if the if the family members were looking at them and trying to give justification for the fact that they are drinking or are they trying to say, you know, hey, why don't you join us? Here's why you can join us, that kind of thing. And so what we thought might be helpful is if we just kind of explained each of us uh, kind of where our stance is and how we might um, defend our our choice to not partake of alcohol. Um, I don't drink. I've never drank um, in all my life. I've never had any alcohol that I know of. I've never uh, never had that moment where someone pulled out a bottle out of the purse and I was willing to drink it. So. <laughs> um, and, but when we think about Scripture, I, I think, um, and the question of alcohol, I, I think what we have to, to begin with is this. Uh, scripture is clear in stating that drunkenness is a sin. There is no question about that. That is absolute, positively true. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a monker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians 5, 18 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Um, and so we know without a shadow of a doubt that drunkenness is sin. And for anyone and everyone, that has to be the stance as a believer. If you're going to live by the Word of God, um, you have to make that commitment to live 
apart from drunkenness, to avoid drunkenness. The question then becomes, um, what about drinking in moderation? What about social drinking? What about just one glass of wine over dinner with your family, those kind of things? Um, And uh, I think we have to have graciousness to allow people to come to their own conclusion on that question. Um, I think as a pastor, it can be very easy for me to throw out a bunch of do's and don'ts and say, well, because I read Scripture this way, you have to read Scripture this way. But I think this is one of those arguments where we have to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in a spirit of unity, say, you know what? Um, This is where I stand. This is what I believe. Um, Now, here is why I believe that. Um, Number one, the stumbling block argument that that Bart said, I don't want to do anything that is going to um, lead someone else into a trap. You know, what I might do in moderation, someone else might do in excess. Uh, They might see me in my drinking if I was at a restaurant or something and say, oh, well, the pastor's out drinking, so I don't, you know, if it's okay for him, it's okay for me. And, And generally speaking, when someone sees you drinking, they don't think, oh, he's just having one. Um, usually the assumption with a person of leadership is, oh, I bet he's, he's, he's probably having two or three or four. Um, and, and so for me, as, a, as not only as a believer, but also as a, as a minister of the gospel, I don't want to give someone else permission. Um, I, I don't want to lead someone down a path uh, that might lead them into to sin. Um, but also, too, here's the other reason. And the first time I heard this, this verbalized was by John Piper. Um, and this is what he said, and I agree 100% with him. Um, I do not want to give a dime of my money to an industry that has enslaved so many, to an industry that has ruined so many lives, that has wrecked families, destroyed people with alcoholism, to a substance that is created to be addictive and to cause intoxication, and drunkenness. I don't even want to give my money to that. I don't want to be connected with that. And that's a personal decision for me that I just don't want to be associated with that. And and so my encouragement to anyone would be this. Um, Come to the Word of God and read the Word of God with an open mind and allow the Lord to tell you what to do. Sometimes we come to the Word of God and we say, well, I want to be able to drink. And so I'm going to find every verse in here that I think is going to give me permission to drink, and I'm going to read those, and, oh, there it is, I got my reason. Or I'm going to say, I don't want to drink, and I don't think anybody else should, so let me, I'm going to flip around here. I'm going to find particular verses that are going to say exactly what I want to say. And I've already got my mind made up. I'm just looking for permission. I'm looking for justification for what I already think. And instead, I think what we have to do is come to the Word of God and, and come to it with an open mind and allow the Spirit of God to bring us to a conclusion. We have been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that He, he came to us so that we might know what the Word of God says. So He might teach us all things. And uh, I trust that if we will do that, God will bring us to the conclusion that He wants us to be at. And for some, that might be absolute abstinence from alcohol. For some, they may go through that, and God might lead them to the conclusion that it's okay to drink in these particular settings. But I say, don't take that decision lightly. Instead, allow the Word of God to dictate what you're going to believe. A little bit after high school, um, my parents had moved to North Carolina, and they left me with a house about... 2,800 square feet to myself, and uh, several hundred, or several hundred, yeah, right, uh, several of uh, my friends came over. Many of them were not um, college students or Bible college students, and um, they just walked in the house with alcohol, and I know for me, um, you know, you think you're strong, but when the vast majority of people that are in your house um, are trying to get you to drink, I um, I am very ashamed to even tell you that that I fell into what I would call that sin um, that night. Got um, <clears throat> I've always been kind of skinny, 
um, never was, uh, so you know, like skinny guy with alcohol, doesn't take long. Um, so uh, for me that night, it was, uh, it was, it was, I just can't be proud of myself. I can't suggest it to anybody. Because um, I was sick. And um, my buddies thought it was the funniest thing in the world because I kept saying I want to call my dad. <laughs> they had to hide my phone. Um, but there was just uh, poor judgment on my behalf, uh, completely influenced um, by friends. And for me, I know that was uh, the first and last time for me when it comes to alcohol. So I can just say from an experience standpoint, I just didn't, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, I have friends and family that have, um, they, they choose to drink, and I don't see anything healthy about that. I don't see anything that's good about that. I might sound heavy-handed, but I just... I just don't see anything uh, good about it. So that's that's my personal uh, stance on it. I saw a version of Blake I didn't want to see again. And <coughs> I'm crazy enough without alcohol, <laughs> so um, I didn't need that. And then I would say this, if, if I can venture into this category, from a professional standpoint, um, as someone who is uh, a minister and as someone who is constantly um, serving students who are under age and and trying to be a positive influence in their lives the last thing I want them to see from me is alcohol and um, so that's just personal and I would say professionally I don't I don't want anything to do with it so I'm not going to do the the full personal confessional here but I will come to the uh, the conclusion um, I've known uh, several people who uh, are alcoholics, uh, some that I didn't know were, and uh, one that I had worked with, and I asked him why he didn't drink when we would have uh, business meals and dinners and things, and he said he was an alcoholic. I said, does it bother you when the other people around the table drink? He said, oh yeah, it's real hard. And I realized then that any of us can be a, that influence on someone. There is a certain percentage of people who their first drink will bring them to alcoholism and will destroy their lives. Uh, there are certain people who cannot resist when they're in those peer settings. Uh, and I realized I, I, the Bible tells us not to participate in the deeds of darkness. And I realize that alcohol is, as you guys have said, a, it's a substance designed to be addictive. It's des it is destructive. There is no good that comes from it. Uh, and I don't want anyone to be able to, to say that somehow I move them further down that path. Um, I, so, I, there's no good reason, uh, as I think both Blake and Jeff said, there's no good reason to indulge in it, and a lot of reasons for the sake of yourself, and if not you, for the sake of everyone else, not to. Not even as a cough serve, I guess. <laughs> <coughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Uh, the, people ask me from time to time, is it all right to drink? And, and the answer is, uh, I, I guess, in moderation. And, and if you can get away with it, uh, but don't get drunk. Because, you know, when we see that verse in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, uh, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, we zero in on the first part of that, saying, ah, that's talking about don't being drunk. And and you have to consider the alternative that God offers to us. And what a joy that is as compared to way, as Gary was just explaining that. But what I tell people when they ask me if it's okay, I say, it would be okay 
you can go down to the store to buy some kind of liquor or, or beer, but you need to wear a disguise so no one will recognize you. And when you get home, just close all the Venetian blinds and pull the shades down. And you might want to sit under your kitchen table with the tablecloth on it and just drink. And uh, nobody seems to want to do that. But it's because, as each one of our my dear friends have said, we don't want to be a stumbling block for someone else because I would hate to think I was responsible for some pr person driving a car and uh, what is that word they used? Uh, limited? I can't remember that word. Where you, you, uh, what is it called when you're driving impaired? That's what. Uh, and run over somebody and, and cause a terrible accident, tragic, because someone saw me uh, drinking and said, okay then. So that's why I think we should not partake of that. There's other things. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's the one other, and I know it's a kind of a trite thought and somewhat cliche. Bible says that we're not to get drunk. What point is that? I would contend that that begins with the first drink. That first drink of alcohol has the same effect on your brain as the second and third and fourth. It just piles on. So really, once you start drinking, it's only a degree of drunkenness. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think moderation is really possible. Uh, well, we're going to wrap up there. It's about time for us to go. We actually made it through six questions. Good job, guys. And uh, uh, we're going to be doing this again next week. We've got plenty more questions to cover. And if you still have questions, you can send them in. I can't promise we're going to get to them all. Uh, but we're going to try to cover as many as we possibly can. Uh, let's pray and we will be dismissed. Thank you for being here. Father God, we thank you for your word and that your word is sufficient to give us wisdom uh, to know how to walk through this life. We thank you that it is all the truth that we need. And I do pray that we would come to it and allow your spirit to guide us every day. That we wouldn't come to the word with preconceived notions of how we want to live, but we would come um, and we would present our lives to you every day as living sacrifices and allow you to dictate how we live. I pray that tonight has been encouraging, that it's been equipping for our people. And I pray that as we think through these questions, I pray that it would cause us to want to know more, to grow in our faith. And I pray as we go from this place that we would apply these words and all the words of Scripture that we read and that we would put these things into action as we live as the body of Christ in this world. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.